You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. <laughs> Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Wednesday, January 6th. Normally, I do a bog standard intro and I'd cut to Nick Correa, but because of the remarkable events happening in the nation's capital, we're going to do a breaking news segment and cut right to Ed Harrison and Ash Bennington. And thanks for joining us. This word is re- getting really threadbare at this point, but absolutely unprecedented day in Washington, D.C. Uh, Congress, the position has been overrun. The last time this happened uh, was during the War of 1812, I believe 1814. As at this hour, we should say, uh, we're beginning this coverage at about 5 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, So there's going to be a delay when this airs. As of this hour, as we record, uh, the balcony of the House and the Senate appear to be occupied right now uh, by a mob uh, uh, that has stormed those positions. There are federal agents with guns drawn all over the Capitol. that is where we stand right now. Ed, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so, I, you know, I'm obviously I'm in D.C., uh, in the D.C. area. I'm, I'm just outside D.C., four blocks out. And uh, to be honest, my first thought is about n- not letting my son outside because uh, there's a curfew until six. But in terms of what we're talking about, what we're doing, I can is about what kind of impact does this have on the economy and the markets? over the medium term, over the long term, and what has happened in markets and in the economy now, uh, it, you know, that is reflective of what what's actually happening from a political perspective. Because I look at this political event as very significant in the history of the United States. And the question is, are markets, uh, going to reflect that? Do markets reflect political events of this significance? It's hard to say whether that's the case or not, because we're talking about it in the flow. But I mean, the reason that you and I are actually interposed into this Real Vision Daily Briefing is because we think that this particular event is a market moving event at a minimum over the longer term. Yeah, that's exactly right. That as the preface, it's very difficult to talk about events when you're this close to it. You don't know, obviously, what's going to happen next. Uh, We could see the situation cool dramatically uh, in the hours to come. It could escalate. Um, I guess the flip side, the darker side, not to be melodramatic here, uh, but nobody knows when they're standing watching Archduke Ferdinand being assassinated that you've just witnessed a significant moment in history. This certainly feels significant. We clearly hope that it's not something that's that significant. We hope that this is an event that comes as a wake-up call. But to exactly your point, Ed, uh, for me, and I don't want to trivialize what's happening here, I know we probably both have a lot of feelings as two very patriotic Americans about what's happening in the country right now. Um, But the reality is doing what we do, which is commenting on economics and markets, someone has to say it. The capital markets in the United States appear to be broken, right? We have the Congress of the United States occupied by a mob, and the Dow Jones Industrial Average closes up one spot four four percent on the day. S and P up 0.57 percent on the day. 
I mean, the VIX declines by 1% on a day where we see political risk in the system uh, that we've never, frankly, seen before in our lifetimes. It's, it's hard to understand, right? It's hard to digest what we're seeing happening on our screens uh, and looking at those numbers. And I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are about markets in relation to what we've just seen. Yeah, so I think that, um, uh, let me just say, first and foremost, if I don't get to it, Mike Green's on my mind in terms of the RVDB that he did with Max on Monday, in terms of the fragility of markets, uh, in terms of elasticity, uh, lack of elasticity. Uh, passive investing, he posits, is the reason that that's there. So, so I'm, I'm thinking of the markets from that perspective today, because you know when the day began, uh, we had relatively market-moving events with uh, Warnock, who uh, won the election in Georgia. And then we had a loss of jobs from the ADP data. I think it was uh, in, in the order of 123,000 versus 88,000 gained expected. I mean, th that data is telling you right now, for the first time since April 2020, we're backtracking. It's not a V-shaped recovery. It's not even a recovery anymore from a jobs perspective. It's rolling over. But when you lose jobs, that's a recession, okay? So the data from December was telling you that potentially we are in a recession right now. And the market is up uh, 400 points on the Dow uh, at the end of the day, even after we see this. So that's what I'm thinking. It's completely divorced from reality. It has no uh, impact on reality. Uh, and, and so if Mike Green is correct, then we could see a huge air pocket when the lack of elasticity uh, rears its head. If, if markets are not moving as a result of the events that I just uh, told you about, then uh, there's something seriously wrong. Yeah, it's such an important point. Passive indexation uh, and obviously the other major factor potentially influencing these markets here is central bank liquidity. So, you know, I, I'd like to see what Lynn has to say later in the program. I know I saw a note from uh, Mike Howell, who talks about central bank liquidity in particular, uh, talking about 2021 having unprecedented liquidity of being injected into the economy. And his general thesis is, is that's uh, supportive of, uh, of asset prices. But the numbers that I saw from ADP earlier today would suggest that uh, you know, large businesses are feeling the pain and they're going to feel more pain when this B117 uh, coronavirus hits the United States and therefore causes uh, a, a reaction from healthcare officials, which I believe we're going to see. Uh, and, and government officials. So, you know, trying not to take up too much of the time uh, for Jack and Lynn, let me just say that I, I think that, yes, we're in a uh, an unprecedented situation, as you indicated, and markets are behaving as if it's uh, par for the course. Bitcoin, by the way, I should point out, went up to a record high of 35, over 35,000. All of that suggests uh, a market that's moving on its own momentum that is that therefore uh, when that momentum breaks for whatever reason it could break absolutely abruptly and catastrophically and so i agree 100% with mike green that this is the most uh, perilous point 
for us at this particular time for markets. Yeah. Bitcoin now over 36,000. Uh, and, you know, to your point, Ed, it's really tough to see or to know uh, for certain why it's gone up. Is it gone up because it's uh, part of the risk off trade, a flight away from traditional uh, equities uh, and other traditional asset classes? Or is it a correlation uh, with U.S. equity markets? So it's one of those days where you could make opposite arguments and they might sound equally credible. So it is very difficult, again, to reinforce the point you made earlier, Ed, about trying to comment on events as they happen. What we can do is we can only go through the facts and give our analysis of the facts. It's very difficult to say what's driving those markets right now. With that, you know, we steer away from politics. We don't like to talk about it. Obviously, it's a difficult day here. It's a difficult day for us to be on the air because it's a very upsetting time for many Americans and for us as well. Um, but there are some important facts that are worth mentioning, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on some of them. Look, we don't like talking about markets in the context of politics, but sometimes there's simply no choice. Markets exist within a political context. It's the notion of the rule of law and the way things get done in democracies, and we have to address it. I saw some things today that, to me, looked very, uh, well, again, unprecedented. The word is totally worn out, but it's accurate. It has, you know, today what we saw um, with the split that occurred between the president and his vice president, a very unusual, if we, if we rewind a few hours, which seems like days ago now, uh, this uh, this episode began uh, with President Trump requesting at a, at a rally or sounding like he was requesting a rally uh, that M Vice President Mike Pence uh, effectively impede the process of the electoral vote count. His own vice president uh, seemed to publicly rebel against that. Uh, and, you know, what watching those events uh, unfold, I was struck. I was watching Fox. I was watching CNN. I was watching MSNBC uh, hearing congressmen uh, from the Republican Party denouncing uh, what the president had done using words like cancer and coup. These are Republican conservative congressmen. There is a sense right now uh, that there we are reaching the end of one political period. I'm not really sure where Trumpism as a political movement within the context of the traditional American political system goes after this. Uh, you know, the president was very slow uh, to denounce what was happening today. It has to be said uh, that if he had come and intervened earlier, potentially some of these people might have dispersed. Obviously, it's a counterfactual. We don't know. But a very difficult time uh, and I'm curious about what you think about this broader political context. It is a shocking thing to hear uh, conservative Republicans who have been uh, President Trump's allies denouncing him uh, on Fox. It's 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 the kind of thing where it feels like the old lines are beginning to break down because we've seen something we've just never seen before. Yeah, I, I think that uh, it is a time for us to talk about the politics uh, because it's important. And you ask a good question. I have two things that I'm I'm thinking about. First and foremost, actually, is is that we have, we, it's a moving target, as we keep saying. 6 p.m. is the curfew. Uh, that's when it's going to be imposed. I was just watching uh, D.C. Mayor Bowser saying 6 p.m. You know, if you're out, basically, we're going to come after you. The protesters. I, I'm looking at the, uh, the the video. This this video is actually going to go out uh, after that happens. So we don't really know. It could be that you know events have superseded what we're talking about, but that's the, the critical time. 6 p.m. is when it's critical in terms of what actually happens. Does this turn from protest into absolute violence, uh, you know, gunshots, things of that nature? Second thing is that I found remarkable 
uh, Rand Paul, who I follow on Twitter, I, he had he went through a tweet storm uh, that I thought was remarkable, uh, especially because he's been a uh, you know stalwart on the side of Trump uh, during most of his administration. And he said, the, "This is the the tweet that I uh, retweeted." He said, "The vote today is not a protest. The vote today is literally." to overturn the election. Voting to overturn state-certified elections would be the opposite of what states' rights Republicans have always advocated for. So this is a guy who's basically saying, I'm drawing the line now, uh, you know, and after these protests, uh, I I believe that, uh, you know, more people are going to be in line with that. So we're at a critical juncture, as you were saying. It's not clear what's going to come after this juncture, but we're at a critical juncture in U.S. democracy, U.S. history. And I think that we need to reflect upon that, even though we are a financial markets, economic reporting uh, news site. Yeah. You know, um, any other day, uh, the lead story might be that it appears that the control of the U.S. Senate has just shifted to the Democrats, a 50-50 split with Vice President-elect Kamala Harris breaking the vote. Uh, Fox News has just projected within the last half an hour or so that John Ossoff, the challenger down in Georgia, has won the Senate race in the runoff. It's possible that it may still be within the threshold of the recount. Georgia, remember, has that very unusual law where you need to win by a certain margin in order for the results to be certified. But at this hour, it appears uh, that John Ossoff has won, giving the Democrats control of the Senate. Yeah, so I mean that's the only uh, uh, you know positive in terms of thinking about markets being reflective of reality. Perhaps you know they think that uh, there's going to be massive stimulus now, and therefore that's a reason to rally. But I, I think that that's a tenuous narrative. The narrative, uh, what I see is, is I see a market that's divorced from reality, and that therefore, uh, given its potential fragility, the inelasticity of the markets. Uh, you know, we we do have to wonder uh, where we're headed, especially to the degree that we uh, have negative GDP growth in Q1 and also potentially uh, lockdowns, uh, which I think are very likely as a result of uh, spiking coronavirus cases. So I, I guess, I, you know, I would leave it there in terms of my commentary for today. Um, again, I'm interested to see what Lynn has to say about her thesis uh, and, and if any of this changes, you know, is there any long-term impact on how she's looking at the year 2021 based upon this? My view, yes, there is a there are unknown unknowns, and those uh, unknowns that are political in nature, social, economic, uh, they will have an impact on markets. Uh, we just don't know what those those impacts are. Yeah. You know, we often talk about partisanship, the hyperpartisan time that we've been living through. But there's also something else that's worth remarking on. You are a very sophisticated watcher of what happens in Washington, D.C., I dare say more sophisticated than I am. But it's worth pointing out that there is uh, also this. Congress is a proud branch of government. Um, We have Democrats and Republicans right now, according to news reports, who are hunkering down together in a secure location uh, after violence erupted uh, in the House and in the Senate. Uh, And so it remains to be seen what happens, where those political lines get drawn. Hopefully, this comes as a wake-up call to the country 
uh, and that we can get back to doing the people's business, to doing the things uh, that we like talking about, which is economic development, uh, progress, uh, and, uh, and the, uh, the fact of going about our daily business uh, as Americans. Very difficult time. Yeah, well said, Ash. And let's just hope when this video comes out that uh, the curfew is respected, uh, we have a peaceful resolution, and we can move forward. Yeah, very well said, Ed. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. And let's uh, let's hear what Nick has to say uh, coming up going forward with the news of the day or the financial news before this news. <laughs> yes, very much so. Thanks again, Ed. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Today, the December ADP report came out, which demonstrated the first decline in non farm private employment since this past April. The ADP report says that the company payrolls had decreased by 123,000 when the median forecast was an approximately a 60,000 gain in jobs. The sectors hit most severely by job losses were for leisure and hospitality, which led with a 58,000 decline, as well as trade, transportation, and utilities, which experienced a 50,000 decline. At this point, private payrolls are 10 million below pre-pandemic levels. As we expect, a lot of the fallout is attributed to the rapid spread of COVID-19 in the U.S., as well as some states like California and Hawaii enacting on virus-related restrictions. The ADP and BLS jobs reports usually show similar trends in data, and economists were also expecting weaker growth in December for the BLS report, an estimate of a 50,000 gain. The upcoming BLS report for December may not demonstrate such divergence between expectations and actual numbers like the ADP report has today but it's possible that we would see a decline in the BLS report too this coming Friday. This past Sunday at the Allied Social Science Association's annual meeting, which is organized by the American Economic Association, Harvard economics professor Raj Chetty described the possibility of a jobless recovery as early signs of it are emerging. He discussed how sectors like leisure and hospitality that are more sensitive to the effects COVID-19 has on the economy will be struggling with those job losses for some time. And he also discussed how higher wage workers earning more than $18 an hour are returning to work more quickly than lower wage workers earning less than $13 an hour. According to Chetty's analysis on paycheck data, in April, almost 12 million low wage workers lost their jobs and around 6 million workers earning between $18 to $29 an hour were laid off. 5.6 million of those workers who earned $18 to $29 an hour returned by November. Only 400,000 hadn't returned. However, 6 million low-wage workers who earned less than $13 an hour, half of those who had been laid off in the spring, had returned to work. One of the key drivers of this disparity is the shift in spending habits of wealthier Americans who have cut down on in-person services and have turned to online retailers like Amazon and Walmart, which, as Chetty explained, are more capital-intensive and automation-oriented companies and less labor-intensive. And to unpack today's events, let's go back to Jack and Lynn Alden. Thanks, Nick. Welcome, Lynn. How are you doing? Uh, pretty good considering. Uh, how about you? Uh, I'm doing well. So going in today, there was already so much news. The results of the uh, Georgia election yesterday, the release of the Fed's minutes uh, today at 2 p.m. And we're going to talk about that. But uh, since then, there's been a, a tremendously important story that uh, engulfs uh, the entire country. 
um, in Washington, D.C., there's been a mob uh, formed. Uh, how, do, how do you feel about that? Um, you know, obviously, it's a very important political event, but uh, you know, what's, what's your take on it generally? And, and does it impact your view on markets and the economy uh, at all? Uh, so one of the themes that I've been covering in my writings is is the trend of rising populism. And this has been a trend for for about a decade now, really, uh, going back all the way to, you know, roughly 2010 or so. Uh, and it's coming from, you know, various factions. We have populism on the right, we have populism on the left. We have, uh, you know, you can consider Bitcoin to be a form of like libertarian populism in a sense. Uh, so there's all these different branches of it. And they all you know, the general theme is that they sense that something's wrong with the existing system. Uh, and as we covered, for example, with with our uh, segment, uh, you know, recently, uh, you know, I, I point a lot to the petrodollar system and some of these other factors uh, that, have, that have been causing a lot of uh, instability, especially among, uh, you know, the middle class. Uh, and so uh, I, I still foresee this, you know, kind of playing out. And so, for example, I've incorporated, uh, you know, works, uh, you know, such as the fourth turning and other things like that, uh, that kind of inform my cultural view as this plays out. And so there, there are different ways to express that in, in markets and asset classes. Uh, but in general, this, this continues to confirm the thesis of, of rising populism, uh, which tends to be a more reflationary environment uh, and tends to be pretty good for commodities and things like that. Uh, and you know, kind of aligns with the ongoing dollar bearish thesis that I have. Mm, let's get into that a little bit. Uh, so you, you, we, I interviewed you uh, in d- mid-December, and that interview actually came out today. And you're, normally those interviews tend to get a little bit stale because they were filmed uh, a month ago. But actually, your views have proved uh, very prescient. I believe when we filmed Bitcoin was at about 22,000. Now uh, it's you know, bursting past 35,000. Uh, we've seen continued dollar weakness. Um, so the, the ongoing events of populism, that supports your inflation uh, thesis, which is obviously good for commodities and emerging markets. Um, what did you think of the results of yesterday's runoff election? Uh, so that actually also contributes to it. And actually, you know, I, I, I covered this, you know, when we had the results back in November, my base case was going to be that, you know, that the Republicans would narrowly hold the Senate and that we'd have, you know, it was still contested back then, but it looked like Biden was going to win the presidency. Uh, and, but, you know, the, the Senate uh, in Georgia became an increasingly unknown variable. Uh, and so as that played out, and we had to see what happens. And so the fact that now there, it looks like there's going to be a very narrow uh, uh, blue control of the Senate, uh, you know, is kind of a mild blue sweep here. And so that actually further supports the, the inflation narrative uh, because it increases the odds of stimulus. Uh, and also at the same time, it's not such a strong blue wave uh, that you can expect kind of major changes. And so, for example, there's still, uh, you know, kind of a centrist or, you know, conservative Democrats uh, within that group. And so some of the more, uh, you know, kind of uh, further left policies are unlikely to get through. And so it, in some ways, it actually could be kind of a Goldilocks for uh, certain asset classes uh, because, you know, you can expect probably more stimulus, you know, all else being equal. But, you're, you know, you're also going to have pressure against, for example, trying to, you know, raise corporate taxes or things like that because there's not really kind of a really firm mandate, uh, at least for the next two years. Let's dive into that a little bit. So, Lynn, before the election, uh, the narrative uh, that was, you know, making the rounds on the, the analyst desks um, was that stocks are rising because of thoughts of a blue wave. Biden's going to win. He's going to win by a wide margin. Obviously, the Dems are going to win the House and they're going to win the Senate too, uh, to boot. And as such, they're going to be able to enact their agenda um, and pass the stimulus bill. And that is pretty much exactly what you just talked about in terms of the reflation wave. But that didn't happen. Uh, you know, the, the reason that we had the runoff was because there, there wasn't uh, a blue wave or it was more of a, a, a blue 
uh, trickle. And yet markets uh, had a tremendous ascendancy uh, in the period after the election um, up, up until this runoff. So how can it be that uh, markets continue to rise uh, at, a, at a time when reflation wasn't on the table? It seems like these narratives are, you know, flip so easily. And you know, you're someone who uh, I think can help me and maybe help some people at home make sense of that. So what do you think of that? Yeah, so I, I, you know, I've been kind of watching this all summer and into the fall, and kind of, you know, outlining the different scenarios. And my view is that, you know, that the the winner would would kind of affect the the perhaps magnitude of the outcome, uh, but it wouldn't uh, likely change the direction uh, of some of my major kind of uh, macro views on this. Uh, and so, because kind of like it's at the point where the math is the math. And so, you know, where we are in the long term debt cycle, you know, where we are in this in this rise of populism. Uh, I didn't really expect kind of a major change based on the, on the outcome, uh, but of course, uh, you know, certain outcomes are are somewhat uh, you know more stimulatory than others. And but one thing to keep in mind is that they all have kind of counterpoints as well. So if you were to get a stronger blue wave, uh, you know, you can in- increase the odds of of stimulus, larger deficits that are likely monetized, kind of MMT t- MMT style policies. But at the same time, you're you know you increase the odds of corporate tax uh, uh, increases and things like that. They can offset some of those gains as they would relate to equities, especially perhaps some of the some of the mega cap tech equities. On the other hand, if you get if you got the Republican hold, you're probably looking at uh, you know less stimulus, uh, but you're also kind of locking in uh, the tax cuts and potentially getting more tax cuts. Uh, and so uh, you know the market's kind of weighing these two outcomes. Historically, a gridlock scenario is pretty good uh, for markets, right? Because it, it, you know kind of the, the government ends up kind of forcing itself away. And the private market uh, just keeps going the way it, it's been it's been currently structured. Now I wasn't sure if that would hold this time because you know in this macro environment the market is so kind of uh, you know kind of tied to stimulus. And so if you were to get that gridlock scenario, uh, it, it could be trouble. And so I was actually kind of surprised at how strong the market was uh, in this lead up. It, it seems like it was, it was displaying high confidence that there would be stimulus, and until recently that wasn't very clear. Uh, but so and going forward now that we have kind of a minor blue wave back on the table. You know, I think the market's kind of looking forward to that. We saw that today. It was priced in rates, right? So we had higher rates. Uh, you know, the dollar kind of held up until you know until a little bit towards the end of the day, uh, and we've seen a little bit more of a rotation with some of these value stocks holding up well, and some of these growth stocks getting a little bit of a haircut. Right. Uh, let's let's talk about how we have your we have your macro view of reflation. Uh, government authorities, whether they're fiscal or monetary, are continue to uh, print a lot of money and inject a lot of liquidity into the economy. That is going to buoy assets, uh, particularly cyclical assets, particularly commodities. Uh, it, it bears poorly for the US dollar. Um, you know, you, you fleshed out your thinking uh, in, in our interview, which, which aired today, on how that um, impacts various asset classes. Um, can you just give, give us a quickly a, a broad sense of uh, you know, what those views are? Yeah, so I, I still continue to view that the dollar is in a bearish trend, uh, and that it, it can still it can be near term oversold, so it can have these balances. Uh, but I think looking out uh, into 2021, I still have a, a rather bearish view on the dollar. And if that ends up being the case, uh, that's likely to be uh, very good for commodities and emerging markets, and perhaps some other uh, international stocks as well. And so the, w- the way I'm kind of positioning is to be overweight uh, international equities, overweight a broad spattering of commodities. Uh, and also uh, long Bitcoin and some of these other kind of, uh, you know, anti-fiat hedges, you could call them. Right. Uh, so, Lynn, you know, a lot of your 
point of view, I know we mentioned earlier that Bitcoin has been on a tremendous uh, surge since we interviewed. Um, one question I asked you in December 17th uh, was, was about the dollar was, uh, how do you act when your trade has gone so well, it's gone so far in your favor that you think it may be uh, you know, a little overbought or a little oversold, depending on what your, what your view is. Um, what, what do you think of Bitcoin at this juncture? You know, is it sort of a, a fundamental value uh, analysis of a, oh, my, I think Apple is worth, intrinsic value of Apple is $130 per share. It's, a, it's priced at $100 per share. But then when it goes to $115 per share, um, you know, your, your margin of safety, to use a Graham Dodd phrase, uh, is, has been cut in half. Is it, is it, do you use the same analysis or with something like Bitcoin when, when it goes up, you think that, oh no, uh, I'm, I'm bummed because I wanted to buy more at the low price? Or is it, is it you know, more of a narrative asset that the higher it goes, the closer it becomes to becoming a sort of reserve asset, uh, the likes of which, you know, if people want to uh, learn more about, they can watch the interview that aired today. Um, uh, you know, how, how, what's your approach to valuation of Bitcoin, especially uh, since it's appreciated 50% uh, since we spoke last? Uh, so as, as kind of a contrarian by heart, uh, I, I always kind of, you know, don't like it in some ways when it, when a trade works out really well, because it's almost like I want it to take longer so I can, you know, accumulate larger position and, and run that position longer. Uh, so I, I gave an update to my subscribers the other day. I'm, I'm still bullish on Bitcoin uh, well into 2021. And I, I, I analyze it from a few different fundamental metrics. And so there's, there's various kind of on-chain anal anal analysis you can do. So for example, you can compare the market capitalization to the realized capitalization, which looks at when individual coins last moved uh, and, and kind of weights that price differently. Uh, there's also things, you, you know, you can use a stock to flow ratio. You can use, uh, you know, all these kind of different characteristics. And so most of the on-chain metrics are, you know, they, they don't look like they're end of cycle yet, right? So they don't look like they look like at the end of 2017. They don't look like how they looked at the end of 2013. They don't look in the, as though they're in those major blow-off tops. Uh, instead, they look firmly mid-cycle. Uh, and so Bitcoin tends to have these really strong bull runs every four years when it's, at, you know, after its uh, rate of new supply gets cut in half. And this one appears to be no different so far. Uh, it's so far, it's, it's doing better uh, at this stage in the halving compared to how it did during the 2016-2017 bull run. So it's actually ahead of schedule. Uh, my base case was that it would probably be equal or slightly less uh, than the previous bull run. So it's already kind of outperforming my expectations, uh, which you know makes me a little nervous. It could have a correction back down to those expectations. Uh, but that's that's just where we are at this point. So if you, if you go forward another six months, I still have a higher price target than the current number. Uh, and so uh, it's one of those things where I, I warn people to to maybe check their allocation. It, you know, if it, if it, if they allocate a certain percentage and it ran up, uh, then they might want to check their you know their overall asset allocation, see if it, a rebalancing is due for them based on their own unique risk tolerances. Uh, I haven't sold any; I'm still letting it run. Uh, but that's of course one of the hard parts of the trade. So it's always hard to buy things when they're doing poorly, and it can be very hard to hold things when they're doing well because you have a natural tendency to want to want to kind of lock in gains. Uh, but I'm being patient with this one. I'm still letting it run. Uh, but of course, I'm I'm kind of preparing people to to you know be ready for for 20% corrections or 30% corrections because they can come at any time. Yeah, in your research uh, report to to paid users, which you kindly sent me, uh, you sent me some of these charts which you mentioned on how to value a Bitcoin, and that is a question that I've been trying to answer for uh, about three years now, and I've never found anything. So uh, th thank you for thank you for that. Um, just zooming out uh, to other assets within um, the crypto space, um, Ripple obviously has had uh, 
some troubles uh, as, as the SEC has launched, filed an investigation um, into their activities. Um, what do you make of, of Ripple and how do you think that it uh, sort of exists within the uh, broader ecosystem of, of uh, cryptocurrencies? Well, Ripple shows some of the downsides of central, uh, central location. And so with Bitcoin, the whole point is that it's decentralized, it's leaderless, right? So, you know, Satoshi launched the white paper before he even launched the software. So he showed the world how to do it. Then he launched the software. There was no pre-mine. Uh, and so people could start mining the coins. Uh, and so it, it kind of grew organically. Uh, as that kind of proved successful, we had a bunch of, uh, you know, companies or, or crowdsourced projects or organizations come along and, and, and you know, kind of do these various pre-mined coins, right? And so... You know, it, early investors, early developers get a lot of the initial coins, uh, and that starts to look more like a, a security sale, right? And, th and then there's also more of a centralized leadership that, that you know, uh, a lawsuit could go after to basically charge them with, with, with you know, kind of securities issues. Uh, and so that's what we've seen out of Ripple, where they had a pre-mine uh, and, you know, they're basically being, you know, accused of, of not doing that appropriately. And so we'll see how that plays out. I'm not a legal expert. Uh, but that just shows uh, some of the downsides, whereas Bitcoin is more of an inherent protocol. It's decentralized. There's no like single organization that any sort of government could go after. Uh, the original developer is anonymous and, you know, apparently gone. Uh, and so, you know, Bitcoin is just more of a foundational system, whereas some of these other ones have more attack points. And, and uh, you know, uh, Ethereum, uh, that, that's kind of its own separate thing. That also had some somewhat of a pre-mine, but so far it hasn't come under the same scrutiny as Ripple. It's been given some of a green pass. They, they handled that a little bit differently. Uh, and, you know, I think one of the key uh, kind of risks or opportunities, depending on how you look at it with Ethereum, is that they're changing the way their entire protocol works, right? So Bitcoin, I consider mostly a finished product. Uh, and so they still do security updates. They still make improvements over time. But it's essentially, you know, it's not radically changing from year to year. Whereas Ethereum, it's a newer protocol, and they're actually changing from proof of work to proof of stake. Uh, and if you look into some of the details of, of how they're going about that, it's enormously complex. And so it, it just kind of, it's, it's basically transforming into a new product. And, and the, so that kind of resets price history, that resets kind of, you know, how to, how to analyze it at, you know, individual token value. Uh, and so that's why I consider that one to be far more speculative uh, than Bitcoin that has, you know, somewhat firmer price history and somewhat, you know, kind of a, a, a more simpler uh, structure to analyze in terms of uh, price expectations. Right. Uh, yeah, that, that uh, investigation into Ripple was taken, obviously, as a tremendous blow uh, to the asset, and it's, it's down a great deal uh, since that investigation was launched. Uh, it arguably doesn't necessarily uh, bode well for the cryptocurrency uh, movement broadly, um, because, uh, you know, if the SEC can look into Ripple, they can, they can look into other assets. Uh, although Bitcoin and Ethereum have been ruled to uh, not be securities, which you know, I too am much less of an legal expert than you are. So uh, we won't go into that rabbit hole. But moving into something that actually was very good for the world of cryptocurrency, uh, what can you tell us about the OCC statement? Uh, so, I mean, that, that was actually kind of a, a point for you, Ethereum there, because it, it helps normalize stable coins. And so we've actually seen kind of interesting developments. A lot of people thought that, you know, the, the bigger Bitcoin gets, for example, or the bigger that this industry gets, the more pushback there would be from the government. Whereas I, I've been writing that it's the opposite. The bigger it gets, the, the harder it is for government to push back, right? At that point, the donor class has more exposure to Bitcoin. At that point, it's a, it's a bigger uh, thing to disrupt. And also governments start to see that it's, that it's here to stay, that if they try to disrupt it, uh, they risk their own industry falling behind as other countries go ahead and innovate. Uh, 
Uh, and so, for example, we saw Singapore, their biggest bank is getting into digital assets as well. And so the last thing that, that the U.S. wants is for its banks to have kind of no no impact on them. And so we saw, for example, that, you know, recent rulings that that uh, banks can custody digital assets. And then, of course, this, this recent one about how they can use blockchains and stable coins and things like that, uh, you know, as, as as they see fit, essentially. And so I think this is kind of conf- further a normalization and some degree of regulation for digital assets across the board. Right. Uh, Lynn, that, that uh, b- uh, financial institution in Singapore, it wasn't DBS Holdings of Singapore, was it? Yes. Okay, okay. Uh, very interesting. You, you sent over uh, a few specific stocks uh, or, or assets uh, that you liked. And I think, you know, so often because you have a macro mind, people love hearing your, your thoughts uh, from a bird's eye view. People can sometimes forget that you actually analyze specific securities and have uh, sometimes very strong views on them. And uh, you, ha- you have your own portfolio. Um, so what can you tell us about DBS Holdings of, uh, of Singapore, uh, Scotiabank of Canada, uh, some Russian stocks, uh, Luke Oil perhaps? You know, what are specific uh, companies you're looking at and, and how do they fit the criteria that you established based on the macro thesis that you know, you've been telling me about? So because I have a somewhat dollar bearish view and uh, an outlook towards reflation uh, in 2021, uh, I've been fairly bullish on banks uh, since this summer. Uh, and so earlier that included U.S. banks, but increasingly I like a lot of foreign banks. And so uh, DBS Group Holdings of Singapore, uh, they're the largest bank in Singapore and Southeast Asia. Uh, and so they're, you know, they're well positioned. Uh, they've, you know, they managed to remain profitable. They, you know, of course they took a big hit in quarter two of last year, but they've been recovering pretty strongly. Uh, and they, you know, back in December, they announced that they're getting into digital assets. And so that includes custody like Fidelity. Uh, it also includes a, an exchange for accredited and institutional investors. And they actually partner with the Singapore Stock Exchange uh, to some extent to do that. And so, uh, you know, they're kind of bringing a lot of firepower to that to help kind of normalize that in Singapore. Uh, and so I, I'm overall kind of, you know, they've, they've historically been a very well-managed bank. And I think they're smart to kind of get ahead of this and have their own kind of internal digital asset division rather than risk being overtaken by it. Uh, similarly, I, I've been pretty bullish on Spurbank of Russia. It's extraordinarily cheap stock, uh, but it's you know it's very well run, uh, even though the Russian government has a big stake in it. And so that turns a lot of investors off. Uh, but unlike some of the others, that one runs a lot like you know a normal private company. So it's actually been a very good performer, uh, very high yielding, and they actually have a lot of tech exposure. Surprisingly, so despite the fact that they're a bank, they have very big uh, mobile adoption among their user base. And they've rolled out things like, you know, cloud services and stuff like that. So it's almost like a, a very cheap bank stock that has a call option with some of these kind of uh, internet slash tech, uh, you know, exposures, uh, sometimes as investments and sometimes as wholly owned uh, businesses. Uh, so I'm pretty bullish there. And then lastly, I've been looking at uh, Scotiabank of Canada. Uh, so they're, you know, they, they've been in this kind of, you know, decade long consolidation. It's been a rough kind of decade for banks in general, uh, but, you know, they have a lot of uh, Latin American exposure. And so, you know, combined with the fact that I'm, I'm fairly bullish on emerging markets with a long-term view, you know, maybe three to five years, uh, you know, Scotiabank uh, represents a way to get curated uh, emerging market exposure. So, you know, it's less risky, for example, than if you were to say, you know, buy a Latin American bank, you can buy this Canadian bank, and then they have a division that has pretty substantial Latin American exposure, uh, but you're getting that through an investment uh, grade rated bank. Uh, so I'm pretty bullish on those banks. Uh, I also sent you over, uh, you know, uh, uh, Itochu Corporation as one of the ones I like. Uh, so uh, some investors are familiar with the fact that Warren Buffett last year, that, you know, Berkshire announced that they invested uh, several billion dollars in Japanese trading companies. 
Uh, so these are conglomerates that are heavily involved in commodities and, and kind of uh, certain other industries like logistics and industrials. Uh, and I, I ended up analyzing all of them. And the one that really stood out to me was Tochu Corporation. Uh, they have really broad exposure. They have everything from like uranium mining to coal mining to desalination plants to convenience stores in Japan, all sorts of stuff. Uh, but they're uh, historically uh, very well managed, uh, very cheap, growing. Uh, and so I'm just kind of bullish on that whole space in general. And I think that's kind of something you can kind of let it ride uh, for several years and kind of let that compound, let that pay dividends uh, and let that kind of over time appreciate uh, in terms of price. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, it's interesting all these companies you name because you're you like them for two reasons. Number one, the fundamentals. Uh, for the reasons you just said, and also they are denominated in currencies which you expect to appreciate against the dollar. So you have those two two forces: the fundamental uh, you know, analysis as as well as the macro. I'm I'm curious, what do the yield curves look in some of the countries uh, uh, that you you name? For example, you know, Russia, Singapore, Canada. Because I know um, just in the U.S. domestic bank market, one criticism has been, oh, the, you know, the yield curve it's flattening, it's flat as a pancake. Banks can't make any money. Um, you know, what's the what's the outlook like in in these other countries that you named? Uh, it varies. So Russia has a positive yield curve. Uh, you know, as an emerging market, they generally have higher rates. Uh, they historically tend to have pretty high real rates, but lately, uh, you know, like many others, they've been they've been pretty low. Uh, but they actually have one of the more conservative central banks, and so they they tend to, uh, you know, if you look at their currency, for example, they they have a large amount of gold uh, in their central bank that backs actually a pretty large percentage of their broad money supply. Uh, and they have a positive yield curve. Uh, you know, it, it's it's been changing over time, so I haven't checked some of the recent numbers. But overall, I like the banking environment a lot more in Canada and Singapore compared to, say, Japan or Europe. And so, for example, I I don't personally have the courage to go into some of the European banks, um, uh, but I prefer some of these other banks. Uh, you know, in Singapore, uh, in in Canada, even in Russia, uh, and I like that kind of uh, globally distributed view. Uh, whereas I think some of the more systemic risks are. Uh, in Europe, due to the fact that you know a lot of those countries, they don't they gave up sovereignty over their currency, and so you have that kind of uh, you know unknown tail risk. Uh, similar, actually, uh, United States is a little bit different, but because we have issues where some of these states have solvency issues, uh, in some ways they're kind of like individual member states of the European Union, where it's it's unclear how that's going to work out. Whereas some of these other jurisdictions, like Japan, uh, while not you know thrilled about their financial sector. I like their overall stock market because you have kind of less of those tail risks involving populism or kind of, a, you know, the, the difference between kind of the state level government and the national level government. Uh, Lynn, that, that's really interesting. You mentioned you weren't brave enough to uh, go into European banks, banks, although I'd say that, you know, you do have some courage as an investor, uh, you know, it's called like weak dollar, Bitcoin, Russian banks. Uh, you, you definitely are not someone who uh, likes to sort of sit on their hands and, uh, by by low yielding low low risk assets and it's you know you have uh, been very very uh, correct um, just judging by your track record over the past year year and a half uh, I'd say relative to uh, just about anyone else on Twitter and and definitely a lot of hedge fund managers who manage billions billions of dollars uh, you, you you've been very correct uh, I guess I want to ask uh, a question which is what what would cause you to sort of change your view, um, your strongest views? Let's get let's get deep into it, not on our particular stock, but 
weak dollar uh, or strong uh, commodities, reflation, uh, what would have to come across in the Wall Street Journal, you know, Bloomberg.com, that would give you serious pause and say, hmm, I'm actually, uh, you know, I may, I may give, this a, give this another look. Because, you know, I saw a, a journalist on Twitter uh, compare the sort of Bitcoin world to, to a religion. And I think that uh, you definitely, I can't comment on, on the, the other sort of ecosystem, but you definitely are one of the most least religious people, the, one of the, the most logical. So I put that question to you. Uh, so what, what would change your views um, uh, on your, macro, your broad macro thesis on you know, long commodities, short dollar, uh, and long Bitcoin? Uh, so to partially depend on what the Fed does. And so, uh, you know, if you were to see the Fed try to, to pull back on asset purchases, for example, uh, in response to maybe, you know, a, a surprise inflation number. Uh, so th currently they're committed to, to overshooting the 2% target. Uh, but if they were to kind of see that happen and kind of blink and start to tighten a little bit, uh, I think that would, you know, that would, that would bode uh, reasonably well for the dollar. Now, I think ultimately, if they were to try that, it'd be a similar outcome to late 2018. And so you could have a case where they try to tighten, the market doesn't like that, and then they have to relent. And so for me, it's not, I think that the, some of the structural forces are nearly set in stone, uh, but there are certainly things that can affect timing. And when it comes to, to portfolio management, timing is everything. Uh, and so uh, there are things I'd look out for, for potential, uh, you know, um, uh, roadblocks or delays. And so if you were, you know, for example, if we didn't get this, this latest stimulus, right? So if you, if you were to have kind of a prolonged period without stimulus, uh, then the disinflation strong dollar view is potentially back on the table in the near term. Uh, but of course, we got that stimulus. And so right now, for example, we're seeing rising expectation, uh, inflation expectations. But we're also seeing rising yields. And that's, that's for example, keeping some of a cap on gold. Uh, and so if you were to see the central bank, uh, you know, move to, uh, you know, cap yields or, uh, you know, kind of buy more in the long end to kind of, uh, you know, uh, decrease uh, real yields uh, even into deeper negative territory, that would be good for gold. Uh, but if you if you do see can, rates continue to rise, uh, that could that could keep the dollar from from declining too much in the near term. So it's it's partially going to be the Fed's decision, right? And uh, in at the Fed's minutes released today at two p.m., it's clear that they have no intention of changing course, which was expected. You know, every month it's eighty billion of Treasury purchases this, forty billion of mortgage-backed securities that, um, and they'll continue that till twenty twenty-three. Uh, ultra low interest rates, uh, ZERP is going to go out to 2025. So I, I would uh, suggest that the the, the fundamentals uh, of your thesis uh, prove prove do prove very sound. But I want to switch gears here, Lynn. You know, I'm someone who I'm, every time I see a headline, I'm sort of thinking about how it impacts financial markets. What's the trade? I know you're the same way. Uh, but I just you know in in the intro today, Nick Correa uh, he quoted a report that found. Uh, you know, tremendous bifurcation between uh, the em employment changes based on their income. So, for example, um, uh, in the top wage quartile, uh, income uh, employment has actually increased one percent, but for the bottom uh, wage quartile, it has decreased nineteen percent. Um, and I, I, this sort of ties in for me the thinking of everyone's thinking, oh, as economic pressure builds, people are going to have to sell stocks. Um, but I think it, it's you know. As that pressure has built, it's been it's been the people in the top wage quartile who have been buying these stocks, and they are uh, you know a lot more inelastic and, and and not vulnerable to these economic shocks. So, uh, you know, what do you think of this sort of K-shaped recovery that we've you know we saw it in May, and ever since then it's just been widening. Um, and you know, what are your thoughts on, on that? And also, how do you tie that into sort of the broader 
uh, fourth turning? You know, what, what's your longer term social view for America in, in a nutshell? Yeah, so 88% of stocks are owned by people in the top 10%, according to the Federal Reserve. And so that underscores your point. And I, I would imagine if you, if you bring that out to the top 25%, I can only speculate on the number, but it must be somewhere in the mid-90s probably. Uh, you know, and so uh, I, I agree that there's not a lot of forced selling of equities uh, in this environment. Now, you can, you can bring up the case there's potentially going to be demographics-based selling, so investors that want to go more towards bonds. Uh, but even that's questionable given uh, you know, negative real yields uh, you know, I, I, one of the most common questions I get from investors is basically what to do about yield, what to do about the fact that that bonds are so low. And so that I can actually somewhat delay, uh, you know, retirees moving into bonds as much as they might otherwise uh, do based on their age. Uh, you know, but overall, uh, I think that kind of underscores the point of the, the you know, the fourth turning that, that, you know, a lot of people talk about. Historically, uh, you know, they tend to happen during the ends of long-term debt cycles. So the last time we had this play out was 1930s and 40s. Uh, and also the last time we had this degree of wealth concentration was back in the 1930s. Uh, and so we're kind of seeing similar dynamics here. Uh, you know, it's always for different reasons. It, you know, things change over time. And so, you know, a lot of this was due to the fact that we we outsourced our, our manufacturing base more so than some other countries did. Uh, you know, our certain choices of fiscal policy, kind of how we how we structure tax policy or, or, you know, what we did with healthcare, or what we didn't do, all sorts of different factors. People have all different views on what should be done. Uh, but I think the main key is that there's tremendous polarization. So uh, the common thread is that everybody senses that something's wrong with the current system, but then they have wildly different views on what that is and how to fix it. Uh, and so that's why you have populism on the right, you have populism on the left, you have libertarian populism. There's all sorts of different kind of... Uh, people pointing out what the cause is and what they think should be done. And I think, I don't know what the answer is going to be, but I expect that there's going to be considerable turmoil uh, in the 2020s. And it's probably going to come along with a lot of, uh, you know, increase in the broad money supply, uh, probably very large fiscal deficits. And, you know, over time, whatever equity market does well in one decade is rarely the same equity market that does great in the next decade. And so, for example, you know, this past decade has been dominated by U.S. equities, uh, and because there's been a lot of foreign capital going into it, we had the rise of our tech platforms. Uh, but if you look at the decade before then, uh, that was dominated by emerging markets. And if you go back to the 80s, for example, it was domin uh, dominated by Japan. And so I think that the, that the 2020s could be characterized by some of these international investors kind of dialing back their U.S. Uh, exposure a little bit. Uh, and that could go along with dollar bearish view. And we could see kind of more strength out of emerging markets. Uh, potentially more strength out of, of Japan. Uh, Europe's a little bit of a wild card too because you know it's a lot of political questions, and so that's the one that I have lower conviction about, uh, either for the for the bullish or the bearish direction. Mm. Um, yeah, you, you mentioned uh, you know I, I know that your belief in the dominance of emerging markets over U.S. is strong, and, and you're right, it is very cyclical. Just like uh, another point you make, which is the cyclicality of commodities. You know, from from 2000 to 2008, man, that was a great time to be in commodities. Uh, from now until then, uh, very bad. Although you did have a few, you know, copper bull runs in the in the early uh, 2010s. Um, I do want to uh, pose a, sort of a counter argument to you, which is something I saw in in a recent, I believe it was a Morgan Stanley uh, a fi financial report, which was that the amount of assets uh, that are available, the amount of U.S. denominated in you know in the U.S. Uh, companies in terms of dollars, uh, continues to grow very slowly or actually shrink. And that is because of uh, stock buybacks and the uh, uh, drying up of IPOs. And now we've seen that reverse a little bit with IPOs this year and SPACs, but really it was about 
70, 80 billion. And compared to the, you know, hundreds of billion dollars of buybacks, um, that, that was sort of uh, not, not a drop in the bucket. Meanwhile, uh, you know, there's been a lot of uh, issuance of uh, all sorts of assets, particularly equities, um, in emerging markets as, as well as in Europe. So what do you think about this sort of asset shortage argument that the reason that U.S. stocks continue to go up is just because there are so few of them relative to emerging markets and, and Europe? Well, it depends. I mean, if you look at where investors are positioned, a lot of big money is in these U.S. firms. And so it takes a fairly small amount of, of people pulling out. So we have we have historic underweighting of emerging markets. Uh, and so I, I think that force could could kind of supersede some of these buybacks. Now, it is true that buybacks are playing a big role in, in why U.S. equities have done very well, uh, especially among some of the, the mega cap companies. Uh, but if you look at, for example, you know, a lot of those companies are net issues of shares. So, so the big ones are buyback, uh, you know, net. Uh, but some of the kind of the, say, the mid-level, uh, you know, software companies, uh, due to the, how many shares they're issuing to employees and stuff, they're actually increasing their shares outstanding. And yet you still see their, their stock prices doing very well. And so overall, I think that'll be a force to watch. Uh, but it also depends on what they do with the capital. And so, for example, I think that the key drivers of emerging markets will be a couple of things. One is a weaker dollar and a commodities boom that could, you know, potentially kind of re we've had like a 10 year stagnation in emerging markets. And you could see kind of the next leg of growth there. Uh, and I think that would supersede any sort of kind of issues of share issuance. Uh, at the same time, if you look at valuation differentials, U.S. equities are extraordinarily highly expensive in many in many ways, uh, whereas emerging markets are still kind of reasonably priced. They were, you know, in contrast, they were very very expensive back in uh, 2007, uh, right before their their you know their bull market ended. Uh, and so I think some of these larger forces are where capital can move, uh, especially if you if you're kind of uh, moving like if you take a small part of an ocean and put it in a pond, that pond goes up a lot, even if the ocean doesn't go down a ton. Uh, and so because of how underweight Americans are in emerging markets, uh, and because of how how kind of crowded the U.S. equity space has come, and, and you know the, the dollar itself, I, I think a fairly small shift could could be beneficial for some of these asset classes. You know, like if you look at all gold miners miners together, all your all silver miners, all uranium miners. You know, these are these are small pools of capital compared to you know, for example, Apple's market cap and things like that. So the smallest shift can can you know kind of really kind of change the direction of a portfolio if you're overweight some of these other areas. Right. Uh, uh, Lynn, real quick, um, I, I know that you like uh, following specific companies, but are there any uh, ET, let's say someone, you know, they don't want to buy a, a sort of cattle comp company in, in Brazil. Are there any ETFs that you have that adhere to that vision that you just said of, of emerging markets, uh, as well as perhaps gold uranium miners uh, that you think are attractive? And rather than looking up a specific stock and getting the depository receipt, you know, are there are there what what uh, ETFs are on your radar in, in that field? I like some of the iShare single country ETFs. Uh, so you have EWS for Singapore, uh, you have INDA for India, you have um, um, RSX is the Vanek Vanek uh, Russia ETF. There's also an iShares version ERUS, I believe. Uh, there's also uh, ILF uh, for Latin America. Uh, you can go with a broad emerging market uh, ETF as well, although they tend to be very uh, dom uh, dominated by uh, Chinese equities. Uh, we'll see if uh, regulations affect that because now we're seeing kind of an uptick in regulations that could prevent Americans from owning uh, Chinese equities. Uh, and so I like some of those kind of regional or single country ETFs. Uh, for commodities, you know, I, I tend to prefer individual commodity selection because I like to err on the side of uh, the, the, the kind of the more uh, cautious ones, the ones with low, lower leverage and lower production costs. Uh, but for example, there are uh, ETFs like uh, GUNR. Uh, it's, a, you know, it's a broad commodity producer. 
uh, ETF. Uh, and so I think that for uranium, uh, there's URNM. Uh, yeah, that's you know a, a kind of a broad uranium miner uh, ETF. And so there are, there are a bunch of different ways you can express some of these views without going down to the individual company level. I, I personally find that individual company analysis helps circle back and inform my macro view. And so, for example, if I didn't go down and look at individual companies, I'd be less, you know, uh, say, confident about Singapore's prospects or Russia's prospects. Uh, but if I go down and look at the individual company le level and see what kind of leverage am I looking at here, uh, what are the management teams talking about, how is the profitability, that kind of circles back up to my macro level view and, and kind of helps strengthen that. I totally agree. You know, the pure macro, the pure technical, the pure fundamental, that's all great. But where you really get that clarity and the framework of understanding is when you, when you combine them. And uh, Lynn, uh, you are very good at that. And uh, you are very bright. I'll be honest, it's been sometimes a little bit intimidating uh, interviewing you on camera because you, you're so knowledgeable. Um, but I, I look forward to uh, having you back. I, I hope I can interview you again, um, as well as I've got a few uh, interviews of maybe people can interview you if that have popped in my head uh, while I'm on here. Um, so great to have you on, Lynn. Yeah, thanks for having me on, and I enjoyed a lot of our talks this year. And uh, you know, hopefully, twenty twenty one will be uh, a little bit smoother, even though it's not it's, it's not starting out that way. Yeah, you know, maybe uh, by the end of twenty twenty one, we can maybe do an interview that's not uh, over Zoom. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Lynn. Bye. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.